Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Prime Minister continues to tap dance when it comes to answering questions about the arrival of Canada's COVID-19 vaccine shipments. The Prime Minister is rejecting pleas from premiers to release the details of vaccine contracts so they can make delivery a little bit more consistent. And Wuhan is in a completely different place one year after their initial COVID-19 outbreak. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. No school today. It's a PD day. Maybe I'll spend my day off on the computer. Put on your stylish weekend mask. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Thank you, buddy. Good afternoon. It is 1235. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes as we wind up week number 47. Feel free to join the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter. You'll find the podcast edition of the commentary there waiting for you. As well, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, we decided to take the, uh, the Prime Minister's uh, news conference off the top since uh, it has been such a uh, a tumultuous couple of days for him and what has happened with uh, supplies continually being squeezed and uh, the Prime Minister constantly uh, being pressured as to where we are, where we are. I'm going to play you a clip here. This is the Prime Minister being asked at his news conference uh, a little earlier on of uh, why he didn't sign more production deals. We all understood that the need to get vaccines uh, to get through this was uh, had to be the absolute priority for all Canadians and for our government. That's what we focused on. Uh, that's why we signed more deals with more different companies than uh, just about any other country for more doses uh, for Canadians than, poss- than uh, any other country. Now, at the same time as we were signing deals internationally, we also made investments to stand up domestic capacity, similar to what we did with PPE. But obviously, uh, the lack of uh, pharmaceutical production capacity in Canada uh, is something that uh, takes a little longer to rectify. And that's why we made investments as of last summer in uh, production facilities in Canada. But Ultimately, Canadians uh, expect to get effective vaccines as quickly as possible, and that's why uh, we cast our net extremely wide with both international contracts and domestic investments. Uh, And uh, I know everyone is looking forward to getting those uh, vaccines uh, into their arms as quickly as possible and uh, more precisely into the arms of their loved ones, uh, particularly elderly Canadians. That's what we remain focused on. From the beginning, we said we'd have Canadians' backs. That's exactly what we're doing on vaccines, on income supports, on on the borders, uh, on support for the provinces, on everything that we're doing. We're going to get through this together. We're working every day to get more vaccines to Canada, and we're very much on track to those 6 million doses by the end of next month that we committed to last year and to having everyone vaccinated by September. 
All right, uh, more of the same uh, from the Prime Minister, stressing about where we will be in uh, September as opposed to where we are now. Uh, Some of the things he said uh, during his news conference, there was a lot of noise right now uh, going on about this, uh, but the delays are of concern to him. Let's bring in uh, Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times, uh, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and he is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, he said during this news conference, we knew of the delays. Would that be news to the provinces? I think so. I mean, obviously, everyone would have expected small delays because, you know, a day or two here in terms of transportation, arrival, distribution, that's par for the course. And I don't think anyone would have screamed about that. But no, I, I had never heard any provincial government saying that they expected delays like this, where... Both of the two major vaccines that are coming into this country for COVID-19, Pfizer and Moderna, are both delayed at the same time. And yes, I know that there are doses that exist, but it, but it also cuts back the number of people who can get the jab in the arm, so to speak, not only once, but twice, which is what you need for Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and most drugs that have been approved, with the one exception being the Johnson & Johnson drug, which is sort of moving its way through the stages. So, no, I don't think any provincial government would have thought that. And I don't care whether it's a government of the right, the left, or the center. Nobody was saying that. No one has said that. And I don't know about you, Scott, and I don't know about your listeners. I never saw anything stating that. So, obviously, it is now finally coming to light that uh, the Prime Minister should have been looking at a production deal a lot more early, uh, earlier than he was, uh, clearly involved in the CanSino deal. That took up the early months of this pandemic, and none of these deals were signed until August, which is why we are where we are. Uh, What was being done between March and August? Well, as a conservative, I don't know, to be honest with you. And as a person who worked with my old friend, Bob Stephen Harper, they're not obviously going to tell me what they've been doing. But in fairness, they haven't also told liberals either, because there's plenty of liberals coming out who've expressed confusion about what's happening, too. Um, I don't know what they were doing. I mean, they obviously put all their eggs in one basket with the Chinese, uh, Chinese-based drug company, which obviously fell through. And when that happened, they had to then scramble to go to Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and others. And yes, we have purchased somewhere in the neighborhood of 398 million doses or for the COVID-19. That's wonderful, and that's great to have. But but that is really, Michael, because we were behind. The reason they shot as wide as they did is because they didn't start till August. The large portfolio is to make up for what wasn't done between March and April. Is that off base? It's not off base, but they should have had a large portfolio anyways. Lots of other countries have, too. The point I was going to be making is purchasing vaccine doses is the easy part. You have to do it. You spend money. You get it set up. That's fine. It's the actual delivery and maintenance of the doses and ensuring that it's done effectively and smoothly and swiftly. And those are the problems that we're seeing right now. None of that is happening right now. And I don't care whether you have partisan liberals who come out and say that Justin Trudeau is, you know, is there for us, that we're all in this together. I wrote in my column recently and others have talked about the famous line he said last March after, you know, the World Health Organization had announced that it was a global pandemic. Yeah, we are all in this together, but as I said in my piece, kind of, sort of, maybe, because these sorts of problems that were happening 
are not acceptable. It doesn't matter which government is power. This is not a partisan statement. The health and safety of the nation and of Canadians has nothing to do with politics and partisan politics. I would be criticizing a conservative government, NDP government, green government, whomever, if the same thing were happening. The buck stops with Justin Trudeau. He can keep pointing fingers at the provinces, the medical community, Canadians, distribution levels, the drug companies, etc. Certainly the drug companies have issues and problems because the demand is high, but the, the buck stops with the Prime Minister and directly in Ottawa. So Justin Trudeau only really has to look in the mirror for the problem, and he's got a resolvement. With the help of his procurement minister, Minister Anand, and others, he's got to get going on it because we are slipping badly. New York Times and various other studies are showing that at one point Canada was actually hovering around 15 or 16 in terms of COVID-19 vaccination distribution. We are now hovering between, one poll shows us around 32, which I think is the New York Times. Another one shows us in the 40s, and I forget, unfortunately, where the third one is, but it's in the middle somewhere. That is not acceptable for a country like Canada, that we are behind countries like El Salvador, Myanmar, and others. I'm sorry, it's just not acceptable. So, uh, obviously now the Prime Minister getting hammered for the lack of a, of a production deal, and uh, the Procurement Minister has now started to address that and said that they went to Pfizer, they went to Moderna, and they told us, no, there's no production deal here to be had. Yet, when all of this started hitting the fan last week, they pull out a Novavax deal, which is coming in a year out of the United States. So, uh, what are we not hearing with that answer? Uh, Pfizer said, no, it's not profitable, Moderna, not profitable. I mean, is that a a satisfactory answer? No, of course not. And look, we should also be fair. Novavax came out of nowhere for most people. That was supposed to be AstraZeneca in this country. If you go back to last year, that facility where it's going to come out of, which, by the way, was supposed to have been finished reportedly around September, October of 2020. And now, as we've heard, it's not going to be finished until way into possibly the late summer, early fall now of this year, that was all supposed to be AstraZeneca. So Novavax just sort of came out of nowhere. And then, as you may recall, the prime minister sort of euphorically said that, oh, yeah, we're going to start getting vaccine doses as early as this summer. I think July was the month he used. Yeah, yeah, that it would be ready by then, yeah. And Mr. Minister Champagne had to come back and say, well, no, the facility won't be done till the fall. And if we're lucky, we'll start having the doses by the end of this year. So that means we have to rely on Pfizer, Moderna, and anything else that we've approved that we then start giving further approvals to in this country, because those two drugs that I've listed and have said through this whole thing are the only two we've signed off on. It's so bad, Scott, and I'm sure you've talked about it, everyone else has too, we are dipping into the COVAX front, and that is supposed to be for Africa and the and the basic and the third world, that's what it's basically you know said for. Canada is the only G7 country as of right now dipping into that fund. That fund wasn't supposed to be for us in the first place. The Economist magazine, which as you know has said that Canada will not be fully vaccinated until mid 2022 at the rate things are going has said that Africa in itself will not be fully vaccinated until 2023, another year on top of it. So no, what we're doing as a generous country, which Canada has obviously historically been, is disgusting, is disgraceful, and no excuse and no amount of spin that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, any of his senior ministers, or any liberal pundit can come up with 
would be acceptable to any Canadian of any ideological stripe. I don't think I don't think this is going to sit well with Canadians. I mean, to me, it's like walking into a, a uh, into a food bank with a box of food, then going around back and taking it back out again. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, and it's fascinating to watch the ministers with a smile on their face say, well, you know, Canada's going to put that much back into it. So but that's not the point. The point is no. you're getting it first instead of those other less <laughs> developed countries that exactly. this was all meant for. And, you know, again, it, to me, it's like it, it's like taking from UNICEF. I mean, it just seems bizarre. It is. And unfortunately, if you want a political analogy, it sounds like a slush fund. And that's exactly what it isn't as a slush fund. That was those were that was money to be developed for drugs for a particular part of the world that is very hard done by and is not going to be finished and fully vaccinated until way after the United States, the UK, parts of Europe, parts of Asia, hopefully Canada, although unfortunately as our numbers are dropping, I'm starting to worry a little bit, and other things. So unfortunately the fact is that they can make whatever excuse that, well, we're taking it all out, but we're gonna put way more in. That is not what the purpose or the point of COVAX was in the first place, and it is wrong what they're doing. And if any other G7 country were doing it, Scott, it would be equally wrong. So what happens, Michael? Put, put your, uh, your prognostic hat on here. What happens sure. if by the end of March, boom, the floodgates open up and we've got so much vaccine on our shores that, again, now the provinces will look dumb because they can't get it out fast enough because it's yeah. all arrived in one shipment all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, what, if that was to happen and those doses were arrived to arrive by the beginning of April, would everything be good? Is that it? Does he get off with that? Well, he shouldn't. I mean, Canadians may actually look at that and just sort of look at it in the short term and say, well, look, there was a lot of kerfuffles, a lot of hiccups, but everything worked out in the end, so we've got it. I think you have to look at it two ways. Yes, it will be good if we have it by the beginning of April. To be quite honest with you, Scott, I don't think there's a hope in hell of that happening. But if it does somehow happen, that's great, and we can all be pleased about it. But then we should worry about the fact that the Liberal government has never revealed their contracts with Pfizer and Moderna, has never been transparent about everything that's going on, has left Canadians in the dark for long periods of time, and basically pushed up the fear and anxiety of a lot of Canadian families, including those with young children, that they wouldn't all be vaccinated this year alone. So, yes, it's great that if it gets resolved early, I think everybody will be pleased with that. But should they and be yet, given a passport? Absolutely not. And, I, you know, I'm hearing today that we are spending the most per capita on this pandemic than anyone. Yeah, <laughs> and yet we don't have any vaccine. Nothing. We have nothing to show for it. You're right. I agree. Well, a lot of people got checks, so that's good. It's helped oh, those good. people, I guess. Well, um, it means our tax dollars, yours, mine, the listeners, great. Yeah, They're out. Yeah. And look, uh, that's all, all important. I, we talked about this. That's all important. But that's a separate issue. Yeah. And again, I'd rather be taught how to fish than just kept you know, being given fish. Uh, at the end of the day, is this resonating with Canadians, Michael? Because this, we talk about this all the time, and it's like, we don't seem to care. We're in the middle. We don't care. We don't care if the United States starts at the back and then goes roaring past us. Um, is this resonating with uh, Canadians, or are they still drinking the Prime Minister's Kool-Aid here? That's a good question. I mean, my old friend and colleague, Lauren Gunter, who still writes for the Sun Chain, that through Post Media, has said that no matter, and I'm just paraphrasing, obviously, because I'm not saying in front of the piece, has said that no matter what happens with the vaccination distribution and all the problems and issues we're having, 
Canadians will forgive him because they just don't care, and in the end, you'll still get a majority. So, you know, that's one way to look at it. That's a cynical way, but unfortunately, cynicism has explained a lot of political elections that we've had in this country, both federally and provincially, over the past few years. Because even though we sort of get frustrated about things, angry about things, at the moment, when it comes to the long-term problems, we are willing to sort of shuffle them off to another part of the room and only focus on things that are, excuse me, current and not look at things that have happened in the past. Like, for example, you know, and I keep repeating it, but we know it, this prime minister who sits in Ottawa right now and is on his second term in office, albeit with a minority government, you know, wore blackface three times in his life. There is nobody five, ten years ago who would be in power today of any country in the world with that sort of thing hanging around him. Yet, unfortunately, due to a lot of things that happened, including problems with the Conservative Party of Canada's campaign, we know that he's still in power. But it shows that Canadians are willing to forgive transgressions that would ordinarily have brought down political leaders of the past. So you look at this issue with vaccine distribution. You would think that right now, as you and I speak about it today, that this would basically be the proverbial slicing of the throat of a political leader and that Justin Trudeau would be toast the next time there's a federal election. However, if you use the logic of Gunter and other people, yes, it looks bad right now, but that's, you know, unfortunately, like elephants, they don't have, you know, we, we don't have long-term memories. And for that reason, if the short-term problems can then be thrust away and replaced by other things, either, you know, goodies handed out through tax dollars or whatnot, then that will create enough this any longer. I hate to say it, Scott, but unfortunately, I'd like to believe that the next time a federal election is called and the writ is dropped, that, I mean, obviously, from a personal point of view, I'd like Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives to form the next government. However, I think they know it, too, and I think all the opposition parties know it, Whenever Justin Trudeau seems down and out, somehow or other, he sort of miraculously recovers and pulls himself out of the terrible hoop or, or area that he's fallen into and comes out clean again. So I don't know. You would think this would be the end of him, something like this. But it's hard to say. And unfortunately, because of cynicism, you wonder if a lot of Canadians believe that. Another question. We've only got about 30 seconds left, Michael. How come he's not in the House of Commons? I mean, the opposition's all there. All the leaders are there. Now, obviously, it's limited MPs and such. Yeah. But they're all hammering at him for, you know, the better part of a week and a half. And he's, he's like doing it remotely. Why is that? And is it not easier to be in question period remotely than standing in the House under the intimidation of opposition? Plus, how many uh, is it not easy for staff to stand behind the camera and give them cues? Yeah, as a visual component. As in cue cards. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. No, he should be. No, I agree with you. He should be there. And yes, I think it would be a loss. So what's the reason for him not being there? Well, you can look at two reasons. One, just off the top of my head, you know how I always jokingly say that Christia Freeland is the de facto prime minister of this country. Well, maybe the de facto prime minister is running the thing behind the scenes. Or two, maybe a lot of his handlers are worried that he's just going to be thrown into a lion's den, that being Justin Trudeau, and he won't be able to fight his way out of it. But either way, it looks really bad on him. It looks bad on the government. It just looks bad in general for Canadian politics because you want your leader to be out front, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard, 
because Canadian politics isn't supposed to be easy. No politics around the world is supposed to be easy. And politicians should know what they're getting into when they take up leadership roles. Some of the things they're going to deal with are going to be great, and then they're going to be awful moments. This is one of them. He should show some leadership and sit in the House of Commons, even if it's just done by his computer monitor. But unfortunately, as you said, he just won't do it. Yeah, I, I can't believe that, uh, you know, that there's O'Toole, there's uh, Jugmeet Singh, there's yep. all the leaders there, and, and there. he's sitting in his office with a flag behind him. Uh, Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. As always, Michael, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Let's play a little bit of a clip of uh, the Prime Minister telling us about why we are where we are. We all understood that the need to get vaccines uh, to get through this was uh, had to be the absolute what? priority for all Canadians what? and for our government. He's tap dancing so much I can't hear a damn word he's saying. More doses uh, for it, Canadians. Than it, it, there's more salt on the floor. More. Now, at the same time as what? we were. Stop tap dancing! I can't hear what you're saying. Alright, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to find a more audible clip where there's a little less soft shoe going on. Maybe a little bit more truth. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Jeff Semple is with us, senior correspondent for uh, Global National News, and there's a, uh, a new series that's going to air at uh, 7 o'clock uh, tonight, and this is uh, talking about the Wuhan lockdown anniversary. It was a year ago, January 23rd, Wuhan went into an unprecedented lockdown. A year later, while Canada and other countries are reeling in the second wave, in Wuhan, the markets are bustling, restaurants are full, life is back to normal and china is also making a somber anniversary marking the somber anniversary by declaring a victory over the pandemic the chinese communist party has even unveiled a new ex- uh, exhibition in wuhan celebrating the government's handling of the pandemic and the whitewashing any mention of uh, the whistleblowers who first defied authorities by publicly warning about the virus not hearing about that uh, the chinese communist party also busy rewriting covid 19's origin story pushing a narrative that claims the virus arrived on frozen food, frozen seafood imports from Europe, as who uh, WHO investigators attempt to trace COVID-19's uh, uh, origins. They also speak with Canadians who were in the lockdown but uh, managed to get home. Joining us now, Jeff Semple, Senior Correspondent for Global National. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. Yeah, great to be with you. So, um, you know, it's interesting uh, because obviously the World Health Organization is over there now, just got there in the last uh, week or so, uh, trying to find out the origins of all of this. Uh, Oddly enough, if you talk to any scientist in regard to SARS, they can exactly pinpoint where that all came from. And there's no reason why that can't happen here. However, will that happen? Will Will we find out the actual origins of this and how it all started? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And the answer sort of depends on who you ask. I mean, we've spoken to the WHO, we've spoken to, you know, other independent virologists here in Canada and the United States, um, you know, and it's very possible, according to them, that we will never know where this thing started. I mean, you know, in the best of times, in normal times, they say it can take years, even decades to trace the origin of a virus like SARS. Uh, And obviously, these are not great circumstances when you're dealing with a country like China. 
um, that, you know, obviously has a very vested interest in, in controlling the narrative here with the, you know, the number of examples you mentioned in your introduction there. So, um, you know, there is hope, obviously, that they can try and trace this thing. What they, they do know enough about it in the sense that, you know, these virologists have spent, you know, many months now putting the genome under a microscope and studying the virus. And from that alone, they say that, you know, they can tell there's no suggestion, no evidence at all that this thing was, you know, cooked up in a lab, for example, that the genome doesn't look like it was genetically modified in any way. Mm -hmm. It bears all the hallmarks of a virus that evolved naturally in the wild. So that's why, you know, theory number one is still that this virus likely made the leap from animals to humans, as we've seen before. Um, but we don't know. And so, you know, in the absence of solid information, of course, this vacuum of conspiracy theories is uh, run rampant on this question. Um, and, you know, I think we'll have to wait for clear answers for, for a while yet. And as you noted, I mean, we may never get them. Uh, considering we did find out exactly how SARS uh, happened, and I remember talking to an epidemiologist about that, and her response was, yeah, isn't science great? Uh, when I said I was astounded over all of this. So if if we do not end up getting a consistent answer, is and will that be a result of the fact that Wuhan or the Chinese Communist Party covered their tracks before the World Health Organization arrived to do this investigation? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's fair, right? According to the virologists we've spoken to, it was, you know, sort of a shame that they, you know, we couldn't, they couldn't get in there sooner. Uh, I mean, as the W as, as has been noted many times, the WHO isn't technically like a police body or anything, right? So, I mean, they're going in as scientists trying to collect information, but they don't have enforceable warrants or anything like that. And so they weren't able to get into the, you know, the, of course, you know, the first outbreak that occurred at that now infamous seafood market in Wuhan, China, um, you know, they would have loved to have gotten in there right away. And, um, but, you know, the Chinese were controlling that very much early on. Um, and, you know, all kinds of allegations of, of the Chinese officials trying to cover up the outbreak. Um, you know, it, you mentioned that the Chinese Communist Party has opened this sprawling exhibition in Wuhan, basically celebrating the government's handling of the pandemic uh, with pictures of the Chinese president alongside medical workers there. Um, no mention, though, of any of the whistleblowers, uh, you know, the doctors and the journalists who first sounded the alarm and warned about this new virus, uh, warned that it was spreading between people. And some of those whistleblowers are now in prison serving jail time for speaking out and, and warning the public and warning the world against official orders. Um, so, you know, that was the, the response of the government at that time was basically to try and control the message instead of, you know, just trying to control the investigation into where this thing came from, which obviously they were doing, but they were doing it themselves. So, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, the thing is, um, you know, like SARS and MERS and all of these, you know, these are always difficult investigations, but the geopolitical tensions that exist around this one, I don't think uh, are any comparison to, to its, uh, you know, viruses we've seen in the past and trying to do the detective work that's needed. So give us a little example of what life is like in Wuhan one year later. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? I mean, obviously, we're not able to travel there ourselves now, and especially not after this week. The Chinese government uh, 
banned all visitors from Canada, uh, even those who have valid work permits, um, citing their concerns around the pandemic in this country. Uh, but uh, we at Global News were able to connect with a couple of camera people and video journalists on the ground in Beijing and in Wuhan and basically talking to them to try and offer us a glimpse of what life is like there now as well as some of our other colleagues with at Reuters and the Associated Press who are there on the ground. And it's incredible. I mean, you imagine, you remember those images, of these haunting images of this city of 11 million people that was, you know, thrust into this unprecedented lockdown for 76 days, no one in or out at all. Uh, and this is at the very beginning where they were sort of didn't know what they were dealing with, you know, terrifying scenes of panic and death. Uh, and now, what a difference a year can make. I mean, the pandemic script has completely flipped in Wuhan, where you're seeing scenes of packed rock concerts and beer festivals, uh, wow. children, you know, flooding back into the classrooms and their parents going back to work. Uh, people are still wearing masks for the most part, but they are breathing a lot easier now because there has not been a single confirmed case of COVID-19 in Wuhan since last spring. Uh, and of course, you always have to take the official numbers and the official reporting in, in a country like China with a grain of salt. But I mean, the, the, the pictures themselves are, are just astonishing to see how Wuhan has, has basically sprung back to life. Um, and, you know, the expert analysis on that is sort of says it's a combination of things. I mean, on one hand, people in Wuhan were already used to wearing masks, right? Uh, speaking of SARS. Yeah, they're wearing masks for, uh, largely to the they're wearing masks largely for the pollution issue, too, over there and have been for years. Yeah, that's it. And so, you know, well, we get used to it and we have, you know, anti-mask protests in Canada. You certainly don't have anti-mask protests in Wuhan um, where they were just used to it. And, you know, another uh, point that was made um, by one of the experts we spoke to is that, you know, a lot of the elderly in Wuhan tend to live with their families at home rather than in long-term care homes, which, of course, was has been a source of, of so much tragedy in this country in the context of the pandemic. Um, and finally, you know, there is, like for better or for worse, a culture in Wuhan and China more broadly where, uh, according to the people we spoke to just on the streets of Wuhan, that they sort of pride themselves in putting the greater good, uh, the country ahead of their own individual good and their individual rights. And for that reason, they say that they, you know, took on the lockdown um, as sort of a, with a sense of collective responsibility. Uh, whereas, you know, in Canada and elsewhere in the West, of course, um, there's been that tension around, uh, you know, asking people to lock down, close their businesses, stop their lives uh, to protect others in the community. So in China, I mean, on one hand, of course, you know, people would have been terrified to break the lockdown in an authoritarian country. But on the other hand, a lot of them said uh, that they were, you know, quite happy and willing to, to, to lock down. Uh, now, whether you believe them or not, they're speaking to the foreign press, of course, is up to you. But, uh, you know, the, the pictures tell the story, really. And Wuhan has managed to come through this. And now the city that was the first city to be really devastated by the new coronavirus now offers this sort of glimpse into a post-pandemic future with pictures that look totally surreal uh, for those of us who have been you know, living through a pandemic for the last year. Too bad they didn't have that same sort of commitment uh, when this all started about keeping the food chain free of contamination. And let's not even get into human rights, but that's another story here. Um, so let's talk about, uh, so they did this by literally just, you know, taking out the dragnet and making sure everyone stays home. They literally pushed everybody back into their home for a series of days, uh, weeks rather. Is that what did this? And what about vaccine? Where does vaccine fit into this picture, Jeff? 
Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, that it is the it isn't the vaccine that has um, that has gotten the virus under control in in China broadly and Wuhan specifically. It is it is that lockdown, as you say. I mean, they have just and the like the digital surveillance capabilities of the state. I mean, of course, we could go on and on about the social yeah. credit system in China, but they I mean, it's big brother, right? They can keep tabs on people in a way that, um, you know, it seems almost like uh, something from a sci fi movie for those of us in the West. So, I mean, you've got an authoritarian government that has the ability to keep tabs on its citizens, force them into lockdown. And, you know, that that, you know, helped significantly. And I mean, there in addition to this, there is, of course, you know, been discussion about even China's manufacturing capability, right? I mean, of course, we had that partnership with them where we were supposed to be, you know, working in a friendly capacity, developing a vaccine together. And we know how that ended. Not well. This is the CanSino deal. The CanSino deal, exactly. Um, And so, you know, we've also talked to um, manufacturers in Canada, including one company out in Richmond, B.C., who has been, you know, waiting to wanting to produce PPE for uh, for months now for Canada. But they're still waiting to get their certification because they need N95 certification to sell these masks to local health authorities. And they haven't been able to get it because the body that gives you uh, N95 certification is in the U.S., the federal agency in the United States, they're dealing with a backlog. So until these Canadian manufacturers can get the N95 certification, they can't sell our own masks to our own hospitals, they say. They've been struggling. Meanwhile, we're buying millions of masks from Chinese manufacturers, um, you know, which has resulted in millions of recalls. Uh, Well, not millions of recalls, but millions of masks have been recalled. and, you know, we continue to buy them. In fact, 95% of the masks that we imported into Canada last year were from China. Um, and, you know, so there's, I mean, it's raised a host of issues here, but all of that has actually, not only has China recovered, um, you know, just from the virus itself, uh, but they've also seen a, an economic recovery. I mean, they were the only major economy in the world that actually grew last year and recorded a record-breaking trade surplus on the backs of manufacturing in large part and thanks in large part to PPE production. So, yeah, I mean, do we know uh, if they're Jeff, do we know if they're making the special syringe that is allowed some to get a six dose out of this five dose dial? I don't actually know that off, uh, offhand, but I think it's interesting to see where that comes are. from. Yeah. Yeah. And there it is again, right where it all comes back to manufacturing, whether it's vaccines, masks, syringes, and our lack of manufacturing capacity in Canada, which has obviously become a theme of late. So uh, there less emphasis on a vaccine, more emphasis on just, you know, control, <laughs> controlling the movement of its citizens and shoving everybody in and locking the door. So uh, are they actively vaccinating citizens in China? Yes, they are. And they have, um, I mean, they've been, I think, sort of criticized for rushing their vaccines through. But, um, yeah, China and Russia, of course, have been, uh, right in the right at the head of the pack, developing their vaccines, um, and of course, you know, starting to distribute them before those phase three trials, which has uh, created some controversy. Um, but yeah, it's uh, China is moving forward with vaccines, and as we know, with the CanSino vaccine deal, not only did they start using the CanSino vaccine uh, that was developed in partnership with Canada on their own citizens, but they also started sharing it with the likes of Russia and Saudi Arabia. So they literally um, took the Canadian intellectual property. Yeah, I mean, whether, yeah, I guess like in terms of 
you're working on it together, then it, you're not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Whatever you want to call that. I mean, whether, it's, I understand. whether it's officially our property or not, but exactly. Right, right. We, we yeah. built it together. I mean, I spoke with Margaret McQuaig Johnson, who basically spent 40 years of her life, most of her career. She's now at the University of Ottawa, but she worked uh, with as a champion for China. She worked with the Ontario government and then with the federal government. And one of her you know, biggest success stories uh, had been her collaboration with the Chinese on vaccine research. And so she really laid the groundwork for this CanSino vaccine collaboration. And now she feels completely betrayed uh, just by the way it it, uh, it is all played How out. can anybody be surprised here, Jeff? And, and I mean, that was going to, and obviously you can't answer this question, but is there any more on, and you're giving us a great deal of information on the CanSino deal, but, you know, many are asking why they would even go down this road in the first place. Now, of course, they worked on the SARS and the Ebola vaccine together, but that was years ago, long before the two Michaels were were apprehended. Many are having a hard time understanding why the Canadian government would make a deal with really is who is Canada's number one enemy right now. Yeah, and I think I think we've obviously learned that lesson the hard way, whether we needed to or not. It's can of course be a matter for debate, but I think yeah, it's uh, it's it's clear that in hindsight they should have never made that partnership. And as you noted, I mean the the arrest of the two Michaels and the whole you know debacle with the arrest of the Huawei CFO has has created these geopolitical tensions between Canada and China, where we have seen in that context that it appears to be relatively folly to to try and partner with the Chinese on on issues, especially on around things like vaccines that are a matter of literally life and death. Uh, and that was Margaret McQuaig Johnson's uh, biggest takeaway, she said, as, as someone who admits that she was a major champion of China for a very long time, uh, hoped that, you know, the economic growth would see the country slowly turn towards democracy. Now she realizes that's not going to happen, at least not under its current president. And she also says that, you know, her advice to others, whether it's Canadian businesses or the Canadian government, is that the more places that you partner with China, the more vulnerabilities you are creating for them to exploit. And they are interwoven into our economy, whether it's education, whether it's health care. Uh, it, it, it's amazing. And those all have to be reexamined. What was once the golden goose is now the coyote in the chicken coop when you think about it. Uh, the New Reality airs at 7 o'clock, uh, Wuhan lockdown anniversary. Jeff Semple has been with the senior correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News for the New Reality tonight at 7 o'clock. Jeff, thank you for the time. Be well. Great work. Thanks uh, so much. Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here is today's daily commentary. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is scrambling, trying to explain why he didn't act quicker to sign production deals to produce COVID-19 vaccine in Canada, like the United Kingdom, who did not produce it either up until last year. The procurement minister said yesterday at the time of signing deals with Pfizer, Moderna and all the rest, we did not have the capacity to produce the vaccines in Canada. That is correct. Because by then, which was at the end of the first wave in August of last year, the Prime Minister's Chinese CanSino deal had fell apart after the Chinese Communist Party said, no, you're not getting the vaccine, despite taking our intellectual property and pulled the plug. That plant was supposed to be up and running by last summer, the Prime Minister promised. 
Others were interested in taking over the incomplete facility, including a Canadian company that was only a few weeks behind Pfizer and Moderna last spring. They were turned down while the government desperately tried to buy up vaccine rather than produce it this late into the game. You can't look at what the United Kingdom accomplished starting from scratch in our producing vaccines now and then say Canada could not do that. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau simply didn't have the will. Much like those prime ministers of the past, he often blames for his mistakes. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, this weekend, Super Bowl. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. And you can hear him every weeknight right here on CHML. He's with us now. Uh, thank you, Scott. Hope you're all doing well. Doing great. I love that one of your one of your listeners decided to bring in some Del Shannon for a Friday request. That's outstanding. Actually, I got to correct you there, Scott, because usually the top hour tunes are the ones that we pick. So that was a a specific pick today, and then all the rest are requests. But go ahead. I I stand back. Well, I still like the song. So whoever (laughs) picked it, kudos to them. I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, towards the bottom of the barrel, kind of like trying to get the sixth dose out of a five dose vial of uh, COVID-19 vaccine. I'm I'm digging the bottom of the barrel, trying to find after 48 weeks, 47 weeks, trying to find new music because we play a different one every, uh, every show now. We never used to do that. So now, and you try to fit it to the, to the scenario, but it's tough now. It's a little like Netflix. There's there are people who have reached the end of Netflix, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. and uh, a few people yeah. who have reached the end of the internet. They're like, okay, yeah. what's next? I'm done. <laughs> I, I just got something that said the end. Um, uh, the way, end of I, the internet. I'm at the very end of the internet. I, I've done it all. All that's left is the porn, and I'll get to that later. Um, no, I, I emerged from the basement to talk to you because the Scott Radley International Headquarters and Broadcast Facility is in the basement of the house. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm standing here looking out the window, and I got to tell you, I don't know where you are. It is snowing like crazy here, and I I love this. If we're going to have winter, let's have winter. Let's not just have the cold. Let's not just have yeah. the gray. If it's going to be winter, bring this on. Let's have it snow like this for the next six weeks. Well, yeah, because the snow day doesn't matter during a uh, global right? pandemic. Exactly. Exactly. So no one's complaining about it. Few, I mean, some people have to drive, and so I'm not happy for them. But, you know, it's, it's, if we're going to be in, let's at least make it look nice outside. Yeah, good point. Uh, let's have a picture postcard. I want to. I wanted to uh, also tell you to give a plug to uh, the podcast that you do with uh, all the sports kids uh, in town, because this is pretty cool when you, this thing comes up. So do you want to give it a quick plug? Sure. It's called uh, Home Games or Home Games Hamilton. You can find it it's on YouTube. It's a video podcast sort of i don't know what the proper word for that is a anyway whatever it's on youtube and it's steve milton from the spec and rick zamperin from chml and bubba o'neill from chch and myself and uh you can find a bunch of them we talked uh, on wednesday about whether there was going to be a cfl season this summer with all the stuff going on and today we've asked the question is tom brady the greatest team sport athlete of all time and if not who is Wow. <laughs> Any NASCAR on that show? Occasionally comes up. It does, actually. Occasionally it comes up. <laughs> only can, only so you guys can make fun of it, though. I'll tell you a little funny story. We we did a, a one the other day, a couple of weeks ago, and the question was, and of course, we do this thing on Fridays called the one-minute debate. And I come in with a topic. The other guys don't know what the topic is until they're faced with it, and they have. I give them the topic on the spot, and they have one minute to make their case on the fly. It's, I mean, it's a great 
find mm-hmm. exercise and it's all of it. Anyway, the one a couple of weeks ago is what is the one sport? You don't necessarily hate it, but the one sport that if you had to get rid of one that you would never see. Oh, Scott. And I got to tell you, even two of the guys are diehard racing fans. All four of us said racing. (laughs) Bubba O'Neill gets up at, well, three of the guys. I'm the only one who's not. Rick loves Formula One. Bubba loves Formula One. Steve is a big NASCAR guy. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you can go watch that, and then you can comment, and you can tell us what big idiots we all are. I'm not watching that at all. And you know what? I'm quite frankly, I'm I'm scared. I'm sorry that I even brought up your stupid little show to plug. I'm just we're kidding. Gonna, we're gonna. Do, well, I'll, I'll add you to the text on or to the tweet to make sure you can. Find yeah. That. Well, if you want a real show about that, you can just you know bring me in as the fifth guy. We'll bring you on. We'll bring you on. All right. Uh, so let's talk about the Super Bowl and uh, just the fact that everybody's looking for something to take our uh, attention away from COVID-19. Uh, set the scene, Tom Brady and and obviously Patrick Mahomes, uh, who my wife is absolutely in love with. Uh, I think it's the only thing getting her to watch the game. Uh, so what are your thoughts? What do you think we're going to see here? Well, first of all, kudos to the NFL for actually getting a Super Bowl because there was a lot of yeah. this was actually even going to get here that with all the COVID stuff and they did have some positive tests and everything else. I, 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 I'm, I am somewhat surprised. I mean, all along the way, you keep thinking, oh, man, this thing's just going to hit a giant poop storm one of these days. And it never did. So good for them for making it happen. I have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, I, I think your wife is probably going to have a good evening because I, I just, having watched <laughs> in the city, I just can't see them losing this game because they've just got so many weapons. They, they just yeah. do. And um, now that said, uh, your wife is having already just, because I know your wife listens every day to all of your shows. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Having, I'm sure having, just like yours does. Well, when she's in the car, the radio dial is broken. Um so having just given your wife a little bit of good news, now let me jump on the bad part because you're talking about Patrick Mahomes. And, of course, the storyline in this whole thing is Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes, the guy who is generally seen as the greatest quarterback of all time against a guy that, and this drives me nuts, a guy that commentators and everyone is already saying, oh, he's, he's already in the discussion as the greatest quarterback of all time or one of them. Patrick Mahomes has no business being in any discussion of the greatest quarterback of all time at this point. Not even it's insulting that his name is even mentioned in that discussion. He's he's played what five years. He's won one Super Bowl, and you could take Patrick Mahomes off this team and plug in any of the top twelve or fifteen quarterbacks in the NFL, and they probably don't skip a beat because this team is so loaded that you just have to have a quarterback who comes in and plays. Well, now Patrick Mahomes is a very good quarterback. I'm not. I'm not dumping on him as a quarterback, but there, he is not in the discussion of greatest of all time. And they'll bring that up all this weekend and all through the game. They'll talk about the, you know, the current versus the future greatest. No, no, no. Tom Brady is. He's won six Super Bowls. He has been to almost twenty percent of all the Super Bowls ever held. Now. <laughs> it's not even a discussion. There's not even a comparison. It's but you know what? The whole Tom Brady thing, it's like U.S. politics. Can we have another candidate other than the Bush family or the Clinton family here? Sure. But but I mean, it would be this discussion, and you will hear this talked about. You, I guarantee in the game you'll hear this talked about because Tony Romo, who's doing the color commentary, who's a great color commentator, but I mean, he is in love with Patrick Mahomes to the point that it's sickening. Um, 
But this is like saying, you know what, yeah, Wayne Gretzky is the greatest, but Austin Matthews is really in that discussion. No, he's not. He's played four years. If you play for 20 years and you put up the numbers that Gretzky did, then we'll have that talk. But, uh, uh, you know, so that is, that's what the narrative is going to be. And, you know, it's understandable why that is, because quarterback is the glamour position, and both guys are very good. But, you know, if Tom Brady... If the if the Bucks win this, if the Buccaneers win this, Tom Brady probably leaps up into. And we were having this discussion on that video you were talking about on the YouTube channel. He probably jumps up into the rarest of the rare air discussion of greatest team sport athletes of all time. How could he not? Um, at forty three, to take a team that wasn't even in the playoffs last year. Now they they did get some extra players around him, but nonetheless. If he could somehow win this, no question he's in that discussion all time, even beyond best quarterback. If Patrick Mahomes wins this, I still think he's got two or three or four more to win before you can talk about him with Brady. But certainly you could then talk about the Kansas City Chiefs as one of the most dominant teams behind the Patriots, behind Brady again in in modern day and maybe in all of football. So you want to make a prediction? I don't do score predictions because that's a fool's errand, but I, I do think, I mean, Kansas City has just, Buffalo was a great team this year. Buffalo was a great team this year, and they were competitive, but Kansas City at times just looked on another level. And I just, I can't see anybody else it, when Kansas City is engaged and healthy, and they appear to be largely healthy, although there are a couple of questions about COVID tests and offensive linemen. But uh, assuming everything plays out and it all. I just. I can't see Kansas City losing this game. I can't. How about you? All right. You uh, the man never makes predictions, but always says on our show, which I love. Uh, um, any. I, I want to make. What do you think, though? Who's going to win? You got to make one too. I don't. I. You know who I think is going to win? I think uh, number four, Kevin Harvick's going to win. Um, do you want to make a <laughs> prediction for the? Uh, you want to make a prediction for the real sporting event, which comes the which comes the week after, and that's the Daytona Five Hundred. Yeah, all right. Works. I digress. Uh, do you want to plug your show tonight? Who's on? Uh, oh, we got a great. So Friday, I understand Friday, you so. got a. Uh, I understand you got an interview with the the late Dale Earnhardt Sr. on your show. Yeah, we're trying. We're working on that one. Yeah. Um, no, we uh, Friday. So it's the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. We always bring in one person that people know from town to talk about all kinds of things. Tonight it will be Bob Cowan from CHCH's Morning Show, who's going to be cool. on for six till seven thirty. Scott Radley's been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Make sure you're listening tonight for more fun and hijinks with Scott Radley. Scott, as always, thank you so much for the time. Enjoy the game. You too, Scott. Um, sorry, I'm also reading an email from Pete on ice fishing. And I'm sorry if that's distracting me away from the show. Or more importantly, the Reverend Jim Carrier and his message of hope from Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. And he is with us now. Jim, how are you? I'm well. I'm actually calling you from the uh, snowy town of Hanover, Ontario, at a Canadian Tire, getting a good lesson on how to uh, be adjustable and make uh, make adjustments in your day to day life, which is pretty much what we've been doing for the past year and a half. But uh, you, you're learning here. that at Canadian Tire. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> we were. Uh, it just snowed all the way. There's lake effect snow, blowing snow yeah. up here, and uh, and uh, we. I had a break season. So we had to find a Canadian tire. So here we are in Hanover. Oh, my. Whole day, whole day derailed, but we're okay with that because we're nice and safe and warm from all the snow. So here we are. 
Well, it sounds like I should be reading you a message of hope right now. That's that's a tough day. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm just kind of waiting for you. You know, I'm at a Canadian Tire getting my car fixed, so I'm waiting for you to weave NASCAR into the story somehow. So, Well, you know, as I'm sitting here thinking, you know, if you got to be stuck someplace, a Canadian Tire ain't a bad place to be stuck, you know. There's lots of stuff <laughs> oh, to look know. at. Yeah, if they let you If you're around. a guy, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> if they let you walk around. I'm standing in the foyer. No, but it's it, it's still a pretty good day. It's, it's been a pretty good week, I think. Um, I think we've had some you know some good news, some bad news. There's still the delay uh, with the vaccine, but you know it's we're plugging along and we're and we're and like I said, you know this is a lesson. Today is a, is a lesson in in making adjustments and and taking on surprises uh, with a good heart and just working your way through them because at the end of the day, you know we're going to be safe at home and things are going to be fine. You know, and you had mentioned this on an earlier show way back when, that you can only do what you can do. And again, as you're right, as we sit and we hear about, uh, you know, the, the situation regarding vaccine and the slowdown and, on and, on and, on and all the politics uh, involving that, you can only do what you can do in all of this. And that's keep your little corner of the world safe. And, you know, I think one of the reasons a lot of people are having a hard time coping with this is that, you know, even though after and I often talk about how our, our attitudes have changed during this, the first few weeks, oh, this will be over in no time. It'll, it'll no problem at all. And, I, you know, either way you slice this and going through the first or the second wave, you know, we're even talking about another. Let's not even go there. Um, I, I think a lot of people are having a difficult time just simply because, uh, they didn't think we'd still be here at this point. They thought, and I remember preaching this prior to the holidays, you know, don't worry, the vaccines are on the way. And as, as soon yeah. as we get through, and we knew January and February would be the the darkest hours of this. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's where, uh, you know, the fatigue is hanging on to. And again, we sort of thought that we'd be a certain place by here and we're not. And that just sort of, sort of sets us back. But again, is a reminder that we're in this for the long run. It's not, uh, there's going to be no quick fix here. No, I don't think so. And I think that even, you know, even when the vaccine comes, uh, we need to be prepared for even a, even a slow comeback from that point on. Yeah. So it's just a matter of, of being realistic about your circumstances. And as I said, taking control of what you can take control of and then let everything else fall into place as it, as it will fall into place. Do you think, uh, and we've talked about this many times as well, it's going to be pretty tough to go through something for this length of time and not to come out the, the other end a different person. Um, you know, you have to make adverse uh, reactions for a few weeks, month, whatever. That's one thing. But once you get into a year, then you're going to start to see uh, an actual change in, in people's uh, behavior and such. And yeah. we've talked about this before that, you know, we were a pretty divisive world uh, going into this. Uh, obviously, we're seeing people get upset. We're seeing, you know, frayed nerves. We're, we're seeing people snap. Uh, at this point, but you got to think after that aggression's over and you <sighs> and finally settle back down again that, you know, again, it's a, it's another painful reminder of how important life is in those simple things that get us through, not the other stuff that we that, that takes up like 80 percent of our day. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, to focus on, there's two ways you can come out of this. You can come out of this bitter and angry and all negative, or you can come out of it uh, learning from the experience and taking what has been positive from this experience and carrying it through. And we talked about this earlier, too, early on in the pandemic, that, you know, there are some 
some things that we're beginning to realize, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tough price to pay to make those realizations, but, you know, uh, a closeness with family, that we're, we're understanding our, our vulnerability as human beings, our dependency on one another, and these are not bad things. These are good characteristics that, that we can, if you choose to, carry them through beyond this. So, you know, my hope is that, you know, for those who are who are feeling frustrated for those who are who are feeling bitter, who are feeling angry, uh, perhaps even 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 a little discouraged, uh, to just kind of cling on to to what what's good, even even though it may be the smallest thing, just cling on to that and carry that through to the end, and then like think of it think of it as a fresh start. That when we're through this, you know, we're we're, we're all going to have a fresh start. So what do we want on our plate? What what do yeah. we want on, on our on our paint palette? And, you know, even to look back, and my wife and I were having this discussion, because we are close to the end of this. We are close. We're in, yeah. we're in the, 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 the last innings of this. Um, and, and, what, and, again, it's not going to be a switch. All of a sudden, bing, and the world goes back to normal. The barn doors open up, and we all go, you know, running naked through the daisies. I mean, that's not going to happen. It will be no, a gradual and I, thing. I, and I think it's important that people understand that going yeah. into this as we, as we move forward. Sorry, go ahead. But I, but I think what's really important here is as we come, to the end of this you know a lot of people you know will look back and think okay there's a year of my life i'm never going to get back but what did i accomplish you know we've heard stories of people who picked up an instrument learned a language i mean obviously that's you know we're we're making extreme light of this incredibly stressful time but Mm -hmm. at the end of this we should all come out with something from it don't you think i think so i think so whether it's you know whether it's it's playing a musical instrument or not, I mean you know, but 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 we should. That's have a little extreme, change. obvious. That's yeah, a little yeah, extreme, yeah, obviously. But you know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah, so like a change of character, perhaps a better understanding of your relationships, perhaps even a better understanding of a specific relationship, uh, perhaps a better understanding of the way the way the world works, how you um, how you uh, relate to your coworkers, how you relate to your family. So, yeah, yeah, I think I think that that if, you know, like I said, there's two ways you can come out of it. And the choice is yours on on how you want to come out of this. There you go. Uh, He's the carrier of hope. You like that? (laughs) I do. Uh, The Reverend Jim Carrier is with us with his weekly message of hope. Uh, St. Catherine's Good Shepherd Church and check out his Facebook page. And sooner or later, he'll bring the clarinet on. Reverend Jim Carrier, St. Catherine's Good Shepherd Church. As always, Jim, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. God bless. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. Hey, what? Oh, uh, Will is just uh, speaking in my ear. Uh, apparently, we have some breaking news. We're going back to... Uh, hang on, who... This is the uh, Prime Minister talking about vaccinations. Can we go to the clip of the Prime Minister, please? Bonjour à tous. 